0: How many of you guys have an iPhone or some type of phone that allows you to have uh, apps on there? Most people have those nowadays. Um, We've started this series called Life Apps. And um, I don't know if if you're like me, but I was trying to think about like, what is my favorite app on the phone? I'm always kind of looking for new apps. And I thought, you know what, my favorite app on the phone, I just discovered it. It's this app, it's called, this. it's a green button, it's called Phone. It allows you to actually make calls on here. It's kind of crazy. I don't know if you've ever used one of these for that, but it does that too. Um, It's kind of funny, it's like our phones do so much more now than even make phone calls. We probably use it more for other things sometimes than even making phone calls. Um, I found a funny app this week. I wanted to share with you for those of you who enjoy fortune cookies, but um, you know could use you know to save on the calories. They actually have an app, a fortune cookie app. Check this out um, on the screen there. You touch it and it breaks the cookie, and it allows you to have a fortune. You can kind of keep doing it over and over. Pretty pretty funny fortune cookie app. But it seems like there's an app for everything on our phones. And um, wouldn't it be great? if there was some real-life apps that could really help us. Um, And in the book of the Bible, believe it or not, there are some incredible real-life apps. And we've been studying, we just started this study of the book of James. And I'm calling it life apps because the book of James is this unique, very powerful, very application-driven book. Now, maybe you kind of grew up not hearing much about the Bible, or grew up far away from church, or um, you're maybe new to God, and you've always heard or always thought that the Bible doesn't have a lot of personal application for you. It's kind of old, and and it's, it's got a lot of old stories, but it doesn't have a lot to do with real life today. Well, that's just not true. I'm here to tell you that the Bible has an extremely amount, an extremely large amount of a very good application for your life, and, and James, especially in the book of James. It is very application driven. And and our theme verse is found right in uh, James chapter one. And I want to read this to you real quick, because this will give you an idea of what I mean by application. Here's what James says in verse uh, 22. He says, do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Uh, James is the the book of James is to kind of give you fair warning. If you haven't, if you weren't here with us last week, I warned our group last week that the, that the writer James, he is Jesus's brother and he does not pull punches. Uh, you remember that game, uh, when you were a kid and you, you said, and let's see who can hit the softest and you kind of get close and you And you say, let's see if you can hit me really soft. And then one person goes, they just barely hit you. Like, oh, that was really good. They're like, let me see if I can try. And they pull back and then they just hit you as hard as they can. They go, oh, sorry, I lose. Um, That's what James does, okay? Um, He just goes, sorry, I lose. Because he's a, I'm not going to... Candy coat anything. He doesn't like try to make things sound nice and pretty. He just kind of shoots straight with us. He gives us some real hard application and teaching. And basically, what he says here, he says, if you're just hearing the word of God and not doing it, then you're just lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself into thinking that you're religious, thinking that you believe in God, thinking that you are. some sort of spiritual person, but in reality, you're just lying to yourself. If you're not living it out, if you're not doing, if you're not giving application to what you've heard in the Word of God, so today we're going to hear some application of the Word of God, and um, we've skipped over uh, a section in James. We, we went through the very first part of of James, just one through twelve or one through thirteen last week talking about joy and hard trials, Um, and we're going to actually come back in a couple weeks, back to just a short passage about temptation uh, later that has to do with chapter 3. But today, we're going to start in James chapter 1, verse 26. And if you have a Bible, I really encourage you to pull it out and use it, because what I want you to do is actually take that Bible and use it and read it at home. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the Connections desk on your way out today. Go ask, just say, hey, I need a Bible. And we would love to give you one because it's the book that's going to change your life. So, because I want you reading the book of James. If you don't, if you have a an iPhone or an iPad, you can go get the Bible app. Um, you, it's a great way to do it. That's what I do. I use my Bible app all the time. Um, so we're going to start with James 1, verse 26 through 27. And let's see what it says. Those who consider themselves religious... And yet, do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. Deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Here you go again. James is pulling no punches, and he's talking about people who consider themselves religious. But he says, if you do not keep a tight rein on your tongue, you deceive yourself. Your religion is worthless. And this this is how he follows it up. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted By the world. So James sums up saying that religion that God accepts is kind of this twofold idea. That number one, that we would have this passion for social justice for the poor, we would have a heart for the poor, and that we ourselves would not be polluted and corrupted by the desires of temptations of the world. That we ourselves would not get caught up in having things and materialism, um, but that we would have a heart like God does. Uh, For the poor, and he says that for those of us who would consider ourselves religious and not do these things, he gives himself a very hard teaching, saying that um, we would we we deceive ourselves and our religion is worthless. I love how James is just—he's just kind of bold and out there, isn't he? He he again—he doesn't like to pull punches, but this is really a setup verse. For our topic today, what's going to happen in the next um, twelve verses in chapter uh, two? And so, oftentimes, your Bible, you, you, they will put a marker that's not in a very good place. And I believe this is one of those times in the Book of James where they put like a division, a chapter two division, when really this this passage and the rest of this uh, next passages all kind of flow together and in, in all the same thought. Remember, this is a letter. It, when James wrote this, he didn't like put numbers of verses on there, and he didn't divide it up into chapters. We did that later so that we can reference things and find it easy. Um, but we're going to go into chapter two, and I'm going to show you how he's going to continue this thought. He says this: My brothers and sisters, uh, believers in our in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Now, anytime. A writer, and especially James, says, my brothers and sisters or my dear brothers. When when Jesus would say that, Jesus would would say that sometimes. Paul would say that sometimes. Anytime they say that, it's this, um, it's the, I'm getting you ready for the the punch in the gut. It's kind of like that. Come here, son. Uh, You know, you put your arm around him and, you know, I love you, but, you know, I'm going to have to give it to you. And when he says my my brothers and sisters, it's this plea. It says, "Hey, let me let me kind of come around you and love on you for a second because I'm going to give you some hard teaching that is very extremely important." And he says this. He says, "Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism." Now, I want to stop at this Point where he says, "Glorious Lord Jesus," Uh, James only uses the name of Jesus a couple times in the whole letter. He only references Jesus just twice, the beginning and then here. And in here, he says, "the the, our glorious Lord Jesus" is the way it's translated here, Um, but it it actually can be more literally said, um, "Lord Jesus, who is our glory, or who is the glory." And now James is a, he's a Jew. He's a Jew of Jews. He's a leader of um, the, the church of, of Jesus, the, the movement of Christians as a very staunch and strong Jew in Jerusalem. And he is sending this letter out to, um, to Christians, believers in Christ, who have been spread out all over um, uh, the Middle East because of persecution. And now he's teaching them he's admonishing them and he's going to encourage them. And he's saying this thing about Jesus. He's teaching them something that's very important. He's reminding them that Jesus is our glory. When he says that term now, as a Jew, the glory of the Lord was the representation of God. It was the manifestation of God. Jesus was the glory of God. Before Jesus, Israel was the glory of God in the sense they represented they represented God to the people of the world. And Jesus was the glory of God, the incarnation, as we say. He was the embodiment of God. It was God in the flesh, the incarnation of God. And now what he's reminding these people is that when you're a believer, when you're a person that says, I believe and I have faith in Jesus, you are the glory of Jesus. You represent Jesus to the world. He's saying, for those of you who are believers who have faith in Christ, you are a representative of God and you are to share and reflect his character and his passion and his heart to the world. He says, and, and that's important because you cannot, what he's saying is, you cannot show the glory of God, you cannot represent the passion, the person, the character of Jesus and show favoritism. They do not mix. He says those two things just do not mix together. And then he's going to give a a little example in verse 2. He says uh, this. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Now, some translations, yours might say shiny clothes. And we have a word for that in our culture called bling, right? So we, we call that bling bling. And so we have a person who comes in wearing some bling and then a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, which in, in some translations would say you sit at my footstool, which was the position, was another term of where you would place your enemies. You would say my enemy is at my footstool. He says, um, you stand there or sit here on the, floor by, on the floor by my feet. He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts he's saying if, if you're in a meeting then this is just a he's just kind of making up a story here he's not saying this is specifically happening but he's saying suppose this happened and if you treated one person nicer than the other then you have shown favoritism you've become a, a person of discrimination you're discriminating against someone and none of us like to like to I mean that's kind of a bad word in our culture we you know we we don't discriminate. Everybody says that, right? We don't discriminate. But favoritism is discrimination, and, and we all, in some way, discriminate. But he says that you're, you are discriminating, and you have become a judge with evil thoughts. Now, let me just ask you a question. What would be the motivation, maybe, for a person to show this type of discrimination, to, to show this type of favoritism, or, or as he calls it, judgment with evil thoughts? Now um if if you were here last week we taught you about how the this the people who he's writing to many of them are living in extremely extreme hardship. The whole first part of the passage was consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds because this was the church the, the believers the Jewish believers that had left Jerusalem they had left their homes, they had left their businesses, they had left their their place where they made money and had Food and, and lived and built homes and had family and farms and they left it all because they were being persecuted um, by um, by the Jewish rulers that, who were who were arresting Christians beating Christians killing Christians Paul was one of them who who um, who well, his name was Saul then who later becomes Paul but he um, was he was persecuting Christians and people were running for their lives. Many of them were in incredible hardship. And if we read back in Acts 4, what was just happening just previous to the situation that they're in, I want to just kind of let you see what was happening right after um, the Spirit of God descended at Pentecost and all these Christians um, began enjoying the, the worship of God and the Spirit of God. Listen to Acts 4 verse 31. It said, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, that's what was happening not very long ago. So these people were enjoying the favor of each other, the favor of God, and the generosity of all the believers. They're ex- experiencing this incredible welfare of a body of believers. They, they were loving each other. They were uh, excited about worshiping God. They were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. And people who had need, were their needs were being met because of the generosity of other believers. Now when persecution hit in Acts 8, um, they all split. And many many of the believers took off running for their very lives. And so now we have what was once this um, family of people sharing things. Now we have people who are desperate. And when you're desperate, is it possible that you're going to begin to treat people differently based on their economic status? Absolutely. Why? Why would you do that? Because you have needs. And maybe if I'm nice to this wealthy person, maybe I'm going to, what? Maybe I'm going to get something. If I treat them nicely, maybe I'm going to get something for me. Right? And this really reveals the heart of what favoritism is. The heart, let me just share with you, the heart of favoritism is a self-serving relationship. You know, we in in our culture, this is just so prevalent with with the American culture is that we have all kind of been trained to have self-serving relationships. And what I mean is, is we look at people not as um, opportunities for relationship, but as an opportunity to serve us. An opportunity to to better ourselves or to place ourselves in a position of higher standing or of uh, an elevated higher economic status or maybe we'll feel better about ourselves in this way or that way but these these people were were looking to those who were wealthy in hopes that they could get something in in return and they were here's here's the problem with that. Number one it's this, it's 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 a it's a lack of trust in God. When you show favoritism and as these people were, James is reminding them that when they do this, they're not trusting in God who ultimately is going to be their provider. He just talked about in the whole first or the whole first part of the first chapter saying that um, that when we go through trials and persecution we're not to look to wealth. And he, he kinda of talks about how the those who are just wealthy, their their wealth is going to fade away. Like the flowers. They just come, you know, they grow for a season but then they just fade away. And that wealth will not last. And he reminded us last week, so we looked at chapter one, that we shouldn't place our hope in things or material possessions, but our hope is in, is in, uh, is in God alone. It's in Christ alone. And that our, and that our uh, joy should be in knowing him and in having faith in him. And now he's giving them the practical application of that is This is going to play out and how you begin to treat each other. Because if you're treating people who have more nicer than you are people who have less so that you can get something, then you are not revealing the glory of God. You are not representing the character of God. You cannot do you cannot do that, he's saying. You cannot have faith in Christ and treat people differently. It's a lack of trust in God to be your provider. Because here's here's the reality too, is it's not just a physical, we're not just looking for physical things too. And probably in our, in our culture and for you and for me, you would not show favoritism because you're really looking to get a handout. But you're probably looking for something different, not a physical need, but you're probably looking for an, an emotional need. Because, let's be honest, everyone loves to be friends with someone who is really talented, really beautiful, um, famous, or wealthy and has a lot of possessions, or is in a really high standing in the company. If you're a president or a CEO, you want to be friends or to be associated with those people. Why would you want that? Because that makes you feel better about you. You. It fills an emotional need um, when we show favoritism that says, I don't trust in the Lord. I'm looking for man's approval. I do not trust in in the Father's approval of me. I'm looking to the approval of... Of others, And so if I can be friends with people who are beautiful, then I will feel more beautiful about myself. If I can be friends with people who are wealthy or powerful or in high position, then I myself may be elevated to those positions as well. So it's a distrust in God. And number two, it's a poor reflection of God's heart and passion for the poor. A a very poor reflection for God's heart and passion for the poor for us to treat someone who has differently than someone who has not i want to read you uh i want a, a verse in deuteronomy chapter 10 one of the very this is of course in the torah the very first five books of the bible um, and in deuteronomy 10 um, this is this is from god listen to this verse 17 for the lord your god is god of gods and lord of lords the great god mighty and awesome he's he's kind of describing how awesome he is so who's the boss He is, right? Who's in charge? He is. Now listen, he's going to describe his character. Here's who he is. He says, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. In other words, he does not show favoritism and he does not look at your wealth. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot be famous enough to get into heaven. He, He shows no partiality between any man or woman and he will not accept any bribe. This is the character of God. Then it says in verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. In other words, those who are poor and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. This is the heart of God. God does not show favoritism. God does not show partiality. And he has a heart and a passion for those who are in need, those who are fatherless, those who are widows, who who cannot take care of themselves. Um. So this is the heart of God. So it's a very poor reflection if we're people who do that, that would do that. And then James kind of gives us this clear perspective in verse 5. Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Again, there's that brothers and sisters. Let me come around you. Let me give you a hug and just kind of shoot straight with you. Has God not chosen or has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He's actually, it's, it's what you see with James. It's so cool because James almost mirrors the teachings of Jesus. He is Jesus's brother after all, but he, he says, and sometimes almost word for word what Jesus says. And this sounds like something that comes almost straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe if you remember some of the stuff, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the teachings that Jesus has talked about. That James is now emphasizing that there are, that God has chosen the poor of this world, those who are without, to to show that God loves them and humble those who have because God doesn't show partiality and how and how God loves and, and will these people who are even poor will inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 6, then he says, But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, many of the rich um, Jewish rulers of that day were not following Christ. They were against Christ. Um, they, they were persecuting the church. They were persecuting people who believed in Jesus. And now um, James is saying these people who you esteem as, as rich and are looking to them and wanting to treat them nicely. He's like, aren't those the very people you're running from? Aren't those the very people who oppress you? It's not that all rich people are bad and oppress everyone, okay? That's, that's not what he's saying uh, or that it's necessarily bad to have wealth. Um, but these were, these were wealthy um, uh, Jews in positions of authority that were persecuting and going after these other Jews who believed in Christ because of their faith. And so they were going after them. They were taking them into court and trying to remove them um, from, take their businesses for them, remove them from the economy and and trying to hurt them in any way that they could to get them to renounce Jesus. And he's saying, these are the people who are treating you this way. Why would you act so foolishly? And then he says this in verse eight. If you were really, if, if you really keep the law found in scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. By the way, who who said that that was the most important law to follow? Anybody remember? Jesus. Jesus said the most important law is that you would love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so here again, James is repeating what Jesus would say. And he says in verse 9, it says, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, when you say lawbreak, you and I say lawbreakers, maybe we don't think of that as kind of a really bad term, but to, to a Jew, when you say the word lawbreaker, you go, oh! you know, you kind of cover your mouth and go, he called me a lawbreaker because the law was extremely important and keeping the law was very important to them. These were Jews who were still keeping the Jewish laws, although they had left Jerusalem, they very much believed they were supposed to keep the laws um and so they were working hard to keep God's favor. And it was funny, the Pharisees would call Jesus, when they would say really bad things about Jesus, they would say, Jesus is a lawbreaker. <gasps> and that was like, that was, you know, a big deal. Jesus, a lawbreaker. You know, that was the bad word. And so here James is saying to them though, he's saying, if you're a person who does not follow, who shows favoritism, you're breaking the law, the number one law that that Jesus gives us and that's to love your neighbor as yourself. So, number kind of to sum it up, he says favoritism is a breaking of this important law that when you show favoritism to one person over, over another, you are not loving them as you're supposed to love yourself. You're not loving your neighbor the way God has called you to to love each other. Let me let me talk for a second about how this sometimes plays itself out. Um, I know that some of you have Facebook, use Facebook social media. I'm not anti-social media. I have a Facebook account. I use Twitter. I don't really look at it much, but I will post stuff on Twitter from time to time. And it's usually pretty stupid. Um, nothing's usually very profound at all. Um, so if you, if you follow my Twitter, you're probably not going to find any like deep, you know, deep, profound stuff coming out of there. Um, but I, it, it's interesting. I've been reading this week about Facebook and how there's this new phenomenon coming about called Facebook depression. Anybody read about that or heard about that? And and I, I believe it is. I believe it is favoritism being played out in a, in the virtual world. And I and I want to want to describe to you how this happens because what happens really in Facebook is it's it's kind of this big popularity contest, isn't it? In in a lot of ways, we can... Be honored by how many friends we have, how many people like us, how many people tag us, you know, in their photos, and how many people, you know, comment on our statuses. And let's, let's be real honest. If you have a Facebook account in here, you know what I'm talking about. When you sign on and you get that little self-approval high, when you look up top and you see how many people have commented on your status, you know, and you're like, oh, look how many people have commented on my status. Look how loved... I am, right? Yes, right? And the like button, instead of saying like, it really should just say, feed my ego button, you know? Or or like self-approval button. That's really, I mean, because that's, that's what it is. It is a, if if you like this, you know, if a lot of people like my comment, then they must like me. It is an opportunity for us to, you know, and in our, in our narcissistic, egocentric worlds, we love, to, we love for people to like us. We love for people to talk about us. And so we, we do this on Facebook because in some ways in the virtual world, it's much easier for us to do that than in real life in some ways. And so what oftentimes people do is people will face depression because people will go on there and they'll go, I'm just kind of a normal Joe and I'm just living normal life. And they look at so-and-so who has all these friends and it seems like every... Whoa, that's crazy. What's going on there? (laughs) Something (laughs) magical is happening. Um, But every status that they do will be this exciting like you know, thing that's happening, the greatest meal of my life, my husband is the best, and they're going, man, my husband's just okay, you know, and then, you know, and then they'll say, you know, my children are perfect, and they're so obedient, look at this cute picture of them, and how, you know, you know, perfect they look, and obedient they are, and they're like, man, my kids are like, they're crazy, you know, and, and then, you know, so they see this stuff, and people begin to think, my life does not measure up, right, my life does not measure up and, and people are getting depressed. It's happening both in adults, it's happening in teens. And and here's the other thing that, that happens too is there's this phenomenon of you can friend and defriend people, right? There's even an app for this. I found this. You, it's called the Defriend app. The Defriended app. And you can put this on your phone and it will show you who has defriended you so you can go get back at them and post me messages on their page, right? And so it, it, it's kind of funny because I actually was defriended recently and it's not the first time that it's happened. Um, but but I had somebody defriend me and at first, you know, my feelings were hurt. It's like, do they not love me? I want everyone to love me and to like, push a lot of like buttons on me, my self-approval ego button, right? You know, and, and now instead of 607 friends, I have 606 it's ridiculous. I'm going to have to go find some new friends to get that number up because I'm feeling down about myself. You know, so um, so I had someone defriend me. and it, But it, after kind of being upset for a minute, I realized, you know what? Am I back in middle school? Is this, is this what we do now? We friend and defriend each other. And, you know, I'll, I'll sit with you at the table, but I won't sit with you at the table. It's, we're back in middle school, but people are living it out virtually because it's much easier to reject someone over the internet, reject and accept a relationship over the internet than they would in person, right? Well, I can just reject you over the internet. And people say nasty things about each other on Facebook and post nasty things about people on Facebook. And really, this is just modern day. This is a modern day platform for, for favoritism. And for what, for what James would say, an opportunity for us to not show the glory of God. And here's what I, I, And again, it comes out in many ways other than Facebook, but I I wanted to talk about it there because it just shows it in an extreme example. But the reality is, is that um, there are opportunities in everyday life that we have that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, whether that be on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever we might be, in the workplace, in church, and even with Twitter and Twitter has always kind of—it's uh, baffled me a little bit because, really, it is it is worship of people in many ways, and, and we elevate people who have all these followers to almost godlike status, and it's like I love Jesus and I love. Andy Stanley or I and Perry Noble or Stephen Furtick and I you know, I, I love this pastor and I love Jesus. And we, we add on these people that we really make idols and we begin to worship and we follow. Maybe it's a comedian, maybe it's an actor, maybe it's an athlete that we follow and we listen to all their their Twitter updates and you know, it's it it's it's idol worship and it's favoritism at its best and it's um in many ways it it's probably unpleasing to God. And so I, I would charge us to to be people who um, do what James says and finishes up this idea with in, in passage in the verses of 12 and 13. Let me show you these real quick because he, he kind of brings it all into perspective. Verse 12, he says, speak and act your words and your actions. What you type on the computer what you post on your Facebook, everything that comes from your mouth, through your little digital world, and your actions, to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? He says, you don't, he says, you don't be a person of judgment, because if you are a person of judgment, you will be judged. If, if you're not given mercy, you will be judged without mercy. Now, of course, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the covering and the grace of Jesus over you. But um, James still says this with very strong language, that there is this issue of of, of judgment. But then he, he concludes it with the last part of this verse. He says this, and this is the theme I want you to to remember is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The issue is mercy. The issue is mercy. How is your mercy going? How's your mercy app? You know, if if you practice favoritism, then you do not practice mercy. How is your attitude towards those who are in need how is your attitude towards those who are in a higher status than you? Do you treat them better than those you would treat who are what you would say is a different status than you? The fact that we even put people in different statuses is pretty sick too, isn't it? Again, it comes back to our self, um, self-driven self relationships that we we're trying to have, use relationships to have our own needs met. Let me tell you, this is very dangerous even in the church because we kind of practice that. And even our culture just encourages, you know, a success and achievement and and workaholism and things like that. And, and, you know, using people for the benefit of our own elevation. And in the church it is supposed to be the very opposite of that. The church is supposed to be this representation of Christ and the passion of Christ that shows no partiality. Whereas when people come from the world into the church, they experience relationships that show no discrimination and there is no status and people of different race, color, and economic status and how much money they earn and things like that. All of a sudden they begin to cross and it's the radio's coming on. That's really strange. Um, you ask them to turn that on. Um, they can't help it. It's satellite feed, and there's not somebody up there pushing a button, I promise. But in the church, it's supposed to be this. Can you guys still listen, and is that possible, or is it too loud? Is that okay? Can I still keep going? All right. So in the church, it's supposed to be this place where we cross all the divides, where we build the bridges, where there is no discrimination, so that when people from the outside world begin to look into the church, they go look at this these people who are treating each other in such a radical way. They don't look at each other with, with issues of race and economic status. And they don't look at each other with issues of wealth and power and, and all these weird things. They, they just love each other as they are. That becomes the picture of the family of God and of the character of God. Who would not want to be a part of that? Well, everyone would want to be a part of that if we of the church would, would live that out. And that's supposed to be, that's what James is saying. He, he's saying, I want you to be the church that lives out the passion in the heart of God right here among the people that you're in. That you would have a passion for the poor. That you would have a passion, you would not show favoritism, but that you would treat each other with mercy. You would treat each other with mercy and not with judgment. That's my prayer for our church, that we would be a place. We say stuff like, you know, no no perfect people allow. My prayer is, is that when you when you not just walk into the movie theater, but when you experience relationships within our church, you would experience a relationship that does not show favoritism, that you are treated no differently than we would treat anyone else because we want to embrace you and love you for, for who you are in the faith in Jesus. And if you're a person who does not know God, we want to embrace you in the family and say, this is what it means to be a part of a family who loves God and loves Jesus is because we don't, we don't show favoritism. We don't do that because we we believe in mercy. And here's, here's why it, it's, it's offensive to God. Because if you are a person who is a believer, God showed mercy to you. God did not show partiality with you. He did not compare you with the person next to you when he looked at your sin. God does not look at you and say, well, you're a little more sinful than that person. So I don't know if you're gonna make it into heaven. God does not do that. God does not take you and say, well, you've done a lot of bad and you haven't done that much good. He does not do that. Instead, he covers you with mercy through through the death of his son, Jesus. And he covers over you. And instead of wrath and judgment, there is mercy and grace. And what, what James would say is, how can a person who experiences has experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus ever show judgment to someone else because of what God has done to you and how God has treated you. If he's shown mercy and not judged you and given you grace, how could you do that to someone else? That's the big reality. You have been given mercy. Then it is your job to show mercy. I want to pray for you today.